0: This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is the full story newsroom edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. This Tuesday, the coalition kicked off another climate scare campaign. There are real threats to the price of electricity. Labor is proposing to spend $78 billion. In a press conference, Angus Taylor. The Energy and Emissions Reduction Minister, claimed electricity prices will rise under a Labor government. Of course, that means consumers will pay, and we know that's going to be a very substantial reduction uh, or increase in their electricity bills, a reduction in affordability. For costing them. voters an extra $560 a year by 2030. A claim that found its way onto front pages, breakfast TV and the radio.
1: According to government modelling and other experts,
0: prices could
1: rise by more than $500 a year over the next decade.
0: But when pressed on the issue, Taylor nor the prime minister could produce the government modelling quoted in the media. Well, the modelling is Labor's. It's their $78 billion. Well, $78 billion. Leaving the impression the modelling may not exist. Today, I'm talking to editor in chief Lenore Taylor. And head of news, Mike Tisher, about what happens when a falsehood is injected into an election campaign. It's Friday, the 22nd of April. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. We were greeted this week with headlines from some News Corp tabloids about how electricity prices would dramatically rise if Labor were elected. Lenore, was this all just too familiar?
1: It certainly was familiar. We've had several elections where there's been quite extraordinary claims made about how the world will end because of Labor's climate policies. I guess the surprise this time was that The coalition and Labor both now have committed to a net zero by 2050 target. And the coalition was talking about how climate was neutralised or that was likely to be neutralised in this election campaign, not an issue that either party was really, or certainly that the coalition was really going to focus on. But there nevertheless were these headlines about Labor's price surge and bill shock and et cetera, et cetera. It was familiar, but it was also slightly surprising because that hadn't
2: been the anticipated focus in this
1: campaign.
0: Mike, do you want to just go through some of the details of what the articles were actually claiming?
2: So the article claimed that Labour's policy to create a $20 billion rewiring the nation corporation had a hidden cost. So Labor has said that it's this $20 billion that it's putting up will produce another $58 billion in private sector funding to improve transmission to help accommodate renewables into the electricity grid. So the problem with unravelling the detail is that there isn't any behind Taylor's claim that this policy will increase electricity bills. He was pressed for, to produce the modelling on which it was based, did not do so. Energy economists were quoted in his press release, but pretty much all of them came out and said, well, that's not exactly what I meant, or that's completely not what I meant. They all have doubts, do have doubts in many cases about the claims attached to Labor's policy. And how quickly it would reduce electricity bills, but they would not attach the figure to it that Taylor's press release did and and subsequent news reporting did.
0: Angus Taylor's claim, Lenore, was that people's bills would increase by $560 a year by 2030 or over 10 years. Did we get anywhere in discovering where he got those figures
1: so it's difficult because, as Mike says, the whole claim fell to pieces in your hands the minute you tried to sort of get a grasp on it. I think it was based on the modelling Labor had done, the $20 billion fund Mike mentioned that's designed to bring forward, accelerate investment in the poles and wires that will get renewable energy into the marketplace. In that modeling, Labor said that they would bring forward $20 billion worth of spending, and there would be another $58 billion in private investment. Investment in poles and wires does get passed on to consumers. The private investment they were talking about, it would seem, is really the generation and other investment that would flow from having better poles and wires. That doesn't get passed on to consumers. If anything, that lowers the cost of electricity. So the whole premise of the back of the envelope nonsense that seemed to come from Angus Taylor's office and nowhere else fell apart at first glance. The other issue is that no matter who's elected, to get to the targets that either party has committed to, we're going to have to invest more in poles and wires. So whoever is elected is going to have to make this investment Labor's just saying they want to speed it up, they want to bring it forward, they want to do it a little bit sooner. So the idea that there's a cost associated with one party's policies and not the others is also kind of crazy. You know, presumably if Labor's plan was going to have that kind of impact on power prices, it would not have been as warmly welcomed by industry as it was. And the idea that that this is some sort of differential just doesn't hold water There's also the question raised by Saul Griffith in a piece that he wrote for us about what would happen if you actually didn't only focus on the supply side, on getting the electricity into the market, but on the demand side, which is his whole point, that if you actually went all in to rewire everything, electrify everything with renewable energy, you could actually bring power prices down much more quickly. So it's a very simplistic, flimsy article that, didn't really stand up to the slightest whiff of scrutiny.
0: And why do you think that is? Why did they do this, release this press release, do the press conferences in such a ham-fisted way with so little substance behind it?
1: I think it was probably sort of strategic misinformation. I mean, as I said before, Mm. the coalition has been saying that climate is neutralised in this campaign. So they couldn't run the same kind of scare campaign as they did in the past, And it wasn't injected into this campaign by the prime minister. It was by a minister via the sort of um, willing tabloid journalists. So it was kind of hand-fisted and it was easily debunked. But it's lodged there now. That figure is lodged there. There are newspaper headlines that can be torn out and put in attack ads later in the campaign or in ads that might be going to be run to warn of the dangers of a Labor government with the teal independents. I think it was a calculated move to lodge this idea somewhere in in the firmament to be resurrected at some later date. I mean, that's the best explanation I can come
2: up with because it was clearly such nonsense. Hmm.
0: Mike, what is the long-term damage of those kind of headlines? Can they ever be undone?
2: Well, I think this is the point. I mean, this, uh, this sort of thing only works if you've got media that are willing to retail it without giving it doing their due diligence on it and doing proper examination of where the figures come from and whether they stack up or whether they're credible. The fact that all the news court papers publish them on the front page, not just the tabloids, incidentally also the Australian means that it is incredibly hard to to effectively pull back that impression that is already out there and, you know, live in the campaign and, as Leon says, can be used in, in ads further down the track using their coverage as cover by the fact that it's been reported by... Uh, Apparently credible source, the you know the, the news court papers, rather than just something that's been plucked out of the air by the by the coalition campaign itself. It's the kind of figure that's difficult to. It's not just wrong. It's just imagined. If you know what I mm-hmm. mean. It's not. It's not something that's you can go and say. Well, look, here's where they're. Treasury has debunked this figure and and their calculations show that it's wrong in some way. It, the only way to pull it down is to say, well, there's no evidence for this. In a way, that's not as effective as having a forensic look at what the figure is and whether it's accurate or not. It's just not a thing at all.
1: And also the level of complexity in the argument you have to make to debunk it is sort of too much for a lot of the forms of media. It's too much for the TV news. And mostly the TV news bundled this story together with another story that was running on the same day where Labor was saying the coalition would extend the cashless welfare card, which is also untrue or certainly not what the coalition is saying. And they turned it into a sort of he said, she said story about how both campaigns are running scare campaigns both sides are running scare campaigns accusing the other of spreading lies and information grab of Angus Taylor grab of Jim Chalmers he said she said move right along without the time because there's not the time on the television news to actually explain why it's wrong or how wrong it is I think that's the way it was mostly reported which means it's not really properly debunked.
2: Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the same is true for like, for Labor's claim. It's on the serious media to look at those claims before they just publish a story that says Labor says X or a coalition says Y. The reporting needs to be more nuanced than that.
0: But, Lenore, isn't it incumbent on the media to just do better, to find a way to get into the substance of these stories?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely it is, and yes, we are trying to, and that is a criticism made by the many, many vociferous critics of the media. (laughs) I've got to say one thing that worked really well in this week of the campaign was the Courier-Mail Sky News debate where the questions came from swinging voters the leaders found it hard, you know, find it harder in that format not to answer. And it was a really good and elucidating discussion about the stuff that those voters cared about, like the NDIS and the federal ICAC and aged care and small business and, you know, all manner of things that haven't really been at the forefront of the campaign most of the time. I think it is a struggle for all media organisations. Because the campaign is traditionally set up in the sort of stunt a day leaves leaders-move-around-the-country format, and you've mm. got to choose, do we follow that, do we use our resources to send reporters on that campaign trail the entire time, hoping to get a question in, which is an important thing to do, or do we try to get at the issues another way? and we've tried to for the most part stay off the campaign trails although we will be on occasion sending reporters in and out and to report on issues but you can't ignore what's happening on the campaign trail and that is how lots of voters form their impressions so i'm not trying to be defensive here i think it's a it's a valid criticism it's something we're trying to address but the way that campaigns are structured does you know pose a dilemma for exactly how we can both cover this sort of moving circus, which is how many voters are seeing politics and the issues which they themselves in these debates say are the most important things to them.
2: A lot of the criticisms you see say things like the media should be asking about this or the media should be asking about that. And that's a perfectly valid thing to say. But the problem is that in some cases when even when the media or others do ask about it the politicians simply flat out refuse to answer and there was an example a good example of that in the the debate on on Wednesday night which was highlighted by Catherine Murphy's coverage of it where Scott Morrison was asked about integrity in what needs to be done to restore trust in the democratic process. And he just answered with his boilerplate answer about what the coalition's doing for the economy. He just completely ignored the question and, and talked about what he wanted to talk about. I think we also saw it where journalists, there's a press conference where several journalists repeatedly, one after the other, tried to ask about integrity and the coalition's plans for an integrity commission or not. And again, he simply refused to answer, banking on the fact that at least for the nightly news grabs, what would be used if anything was just the answer and maybe not the question or nothing at all from that exchange.
0: Isn't this very cynical? Do we know what voters think about this kind of scare campaign and he said, she said style reporting?
2: What we know about the voters who decide the elections is that Many of them aren't all that interested in, in politics. And so they inevitably decide on relatively superficial impressions, unfortunately. So that's what the parties are aiming to produce, as much as informed, you know, carefully thought out, nuanced policy debates.
1: We also know that from the polling that a bigger proportion of the electorate than ever is intending or saying that they intend to vote for neither major party but mm-hmm. for either the centrist independence or the you know, large number of right-wing independents because they're sort of disillusioned with the whole system and they want to shake things up. And you have to think that a daily diet of gotcha moments and he said, she said, they both run scare campaigns would only exacerbate that sense of disillusionment.
0: And what about the independents making you eat insects if you elect them? (laughs) That was the
1: follow-up story, which was like even wilder than the (laughs) Labor electricity bills story and was also in the News Corp tabloids and was a little hard to follow, but basically the Teal independents say they want deeper emissions cuts. And when asked how they could get the deeper emissions cuts, they said they were referring to work by the Australian Energy Market Operator. And AEMO said they used lots of different types of modelling and calculations to say that deeper emissions cuts are possible, including some by a research outfit called ClimateWorks. And the research outfit by ClimateWorks, in passing, in one of their reports, talked about how over time to attain deeper emissions cuts, we might have to have an increased awareness of the environmental impacts of diet including the sources of protein, and maybe we might need to eat less emissions-intensive protein like kangaroo meat or maybe other sources of protein that are emerging, such as insects or plant-based meat alternatives, which became till independence are going to make us all eat bugs.
2: Yeah, so that report from 2020 is 138 pages long. It's full of a lot of graphs, a lot of charts and tables, pages and pages of references. It's quite long and detailed with lots of actually really interesting ideas about how practical measures Australia could take to decarbonise its economy. So they must have really spent a fair bit of time looking for one tiny little thing that they could pull out to come up with their headline, which online and in part in the papers was climate cults, cuckoo land ideas laid bare. I
1: mean, the (laughs) idea that we might need different sources of protein, isn't that kind of extreme, it's a big emerging industry, plant-based protein, man-made meats, etc. I mean, even Hungry Jack's has a vegan burger.
2: I mean, <laughs> the leap from, if you vote for the Teal independence, then they may get the balance of power. Then they may implement <laughs> these policies that by 2030 may include different sources of protein. Like there were a lot of steps there.
0: I'm glad we're all on board with net zero by 2050. <laughs> <laughs> Next, cartoons and breaking out of the Canberra bubble. So now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Now, personally, I think there were rich pickings this week. So I'm really interested to hear what you have to say. Lenore, what was yours?
1: I'm really enjoying our Anywhere But Canberra series, which is where our reporters go out to electorates and talk to voters and try to figure out, you know, what people are really thinking and saying outside of you know, Sydney and Melbourne and the places that most of our reporters live. And I especially enjoyed one that Catherine Murphy wrote uh, after a visit to Bass and Braddon because without going into it too in too much detail, the locals really did not hold back. Uh, the, <laughs> level with the, whole, the level of disillusionment with the whole system was quite wrong and so was some of the language. It was a good read.
0: It was fantastic, yes. Lots of colourful characters, weren't there? <laughs> Mike, what can't you get out of your head?
2: So I'm going to go a bit left field this week and I want to talk about a football cartoon by our excellent cartoonist, David Squires, who drew and wrote last week about someone he knew who had died recently, who he knew only from having sat next to him regularly at the football. And it was really, I think, a real testament to David's skill Mm. and depth as a cartoonist that he made it not at all about football. In fact, as he said, sometimes football isn't even about football. It's about human connections, sometimes with great people you'd never otherwise have met, and all told in like six panels of drawings and text. It was amazing. Mm.
0: At the risk of really lowering the tone, (laughs) there there is a a vision imprinted on my brain that I can't get out of my head this week. I'll just leave you with four words. Tucker Carlson's testicle tanning. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot that's it for today. If you're enjoying our coverage of the election, please do look through Full Story for our seat profiles. The one Lenore talked about that Catherine Murphy went to Tasmania was Thursday's episode. It's a really rich and interesting exploration of the seats, and as Lenore said, there are lots of colourful characters involved. And what about Anthony Albanese? Is he any better?
2: Two chicks the same saw really. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It really has given me such insight into how people around the country are thinking and feeling, and it's really making me think about uh, how we see things so differently from the city or even from our media chairs. Please do go give them a listen. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannan. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Once again, you'll find Jane Lee on Campaign Catch Up in the full story feed this afternoon, and Laura Murphy Oates will be back with you on Monday. We'll see you then.